phrase never meet your heroes implies that we may have this romanticized view of famous people, maybe athletes or actors or whomever, but if you were to meet them in real life, you would quickly discover that they do not reciprocate the same admiration for you that you have for them. They're not gushing over you, wow, I'm so excited to meet you. Uh, you'd realize pretty quick, uh, these people are arrogant, they're selfish, they're short-tempered, and so what's being communicated by never meet your heroes is there's almost a sense of blissful ignorance in just knowing that these people are pretty awesome on the screen, and it's probably just good to keep it that way, because if you were to meet them in real life, you're going to be disappointed. They're not as cool as media makes them out to be. The Bible does not share that ideology. In fact, the Bible is almost particularly careful to show us the shortcomings of its characters. Some of the most well-known, I might say famous characters in scripture have like some pretty big flaws revealed about them. And, and scripture is not trying to like gloss over them and say, oh no, no, they're amazing. Uh, let me just list off a couple and you tell me what shortcomings these characters had. So for instance, I think of Moses, arguably the greatest person in the Old Testament, uh, unrivaled in a relationship with God and in the things that God used him to do. And yet when I mention his name, what are some of the shortcomings that, that scripture is careful to outline? <laughs> yeah, he did have a bit of a temper. I was thinking maybe we were thinking the same one when he like throws the Ten Commandments down coming off the mountain. Yeah, what else? Yeah, he murdered the Egyptian. Any other things come to mind? Yeah, he was pretty, uh, he talked back to God there when God had a mission for him. Yeah, I thought of when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, and that was the event that disqualified him from entering Canaan. How about another character? What about Abraham? God makes a covenant with Abraham, I mean, and says, listen, through you, Jesus is going to come, and yet Abraham wasn't without sin. What are some of the sins that you think of when I say Abraham? Yes, it seems like he doubted God's promise that he and Sarah were going to have a baby in their 80s, 90s, when he's 100. Yeah, twice he lied to uh, a foreign king about his relationship to Sarah. Uh, maybe in the New Testament, the obvious one, Peter, right? He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in all of his glory, and yet Scripture is careful to tell us that Peter did what? He denied Jesus three times. Yeah. N now, my intention in revisiting the shortcomings of some of these heroes of Scripture is not to be disparaging to them. Uh, really, we should not celebrate uh, the sins of public figures, certainly. Um, but like I said already, it seems that Scripture is careful, even intentional, to list shortcomings of Bible characters. It reminds us that for as awesome as Moses, Abraham, and Peter are, for as great of things as they did, they're still sinners. They're still human. Most importantly, they're not deserving of our worship. Only one person is. All of this is introduction today to what is perhaps the most well-known example of a biblical hero stumbling falling. 
Uh, I'm talking, of course, about David and Bathsheba. Yeah. If you were to evaluate David's life up to this point in 2 Samuel as if it were a chart or a graph, it would be trending upwards. David has done some awesome things. He has really demonstrated that he is a man after God's own heart. And yet, in our story today, he just plummets. It is a rapid decline in his life. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel 11, I know this story of David and Bathsheba is familiar to us. Uh, it's one of the classic texts used to describe uh, sexual sins and the, sh- the dangers of them, but I hope that our familiarity with this story doesn't cause you to zone out. Uh, we're going to do what we do every week and just go line by line through this text, make some comments and application to our own life, and I trust that this will be a rich study for us all. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We read, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. We'll pause there. I assume that this scene is probably pretty well set in your minds as we read those first five verses. We understand what is going on here. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that when David inquires about Bathsheba and he's given this response, there should have immediately been some warning lights that have been flashing in his head. Right, he is told when he says, who is this woman? Look at it again. They say, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Chapter 23 is going to inform us that Uriah is one of David's 30 mighty men. This uh, select group of guys who are just renowned for their feats in battle. It's likely that David probably knows him. This isn't just Joshmo and his giant army. This is one of his 30 mighty men, but even more importantly... Bathsheba is his wife. And at that revelation, David should have just stepped back and let it go. If we were to look at the past as any indicator, that's what we would expect of David. He's proven himself to have a pretty sensitive conscience up to this point in the scriptures. You think about when he is on his way to kill Nabal, Abigail, like, meets him on the way, and she says, whoa, 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 whoa. Please slow down. Do not let this blood be on your hands. And she talks him out of it, and David is pretty well responsive. This is the same David who refuses to kill the Lord's anointed. This is the David who last week 
shows unimaginable mercy and kindness to Mephibosheth. This is the David who is described as dealing justly and with equity with the people of Israel. And yet in this instance, the lust of his heart overcomes his judgment, totally clouds his thinking, so that this news that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah falls on deaf ears. And he says, bring her to me. I don't care. Now this is rhetorical, but I want you to pause for just a minute here and consider if there are sins in your life that seem to just have like a fast track to your heart. That you might even be able to ignore your conscience, the working of the spirit, these clear roadblocks that David should have had, and you just indulge yourself in them anyway. I'm not just talking about sexual sins here. Could be any number of things. I thought of perhaps anxiety, where anxiety almost becomes part of our nature. It's who we are. We just think, I'm an anxious person, without ever considering that Scripture calls that a sin and offers alternatives to thinking about things without being anxious. Perhaps you have this like strong desire to be the center of attention, that people must look at me and think I'm awesome, that you would ignore clear teachings in Scripture to be humble. And when given an occasion to make yourself look big, you're like, okay, I got to do it. And in essence, quench the Spirit of God within you saying, be humble. Maybe it's the uh, desire to overindulge yourself, be that in any number of things, entertainment, sleep, food, you name it, that these just have a fast track to our heart. And, and, and we very rarely give any consideration to what the scriptures might say about self-control. Think about that for a second. Can I encourage you to thoughtfully consider if there is a sin that has such an overwhelming control on you, like it did David, that you just almost feel like, I can't do anything, I have to give in. We're going to look this morning at how to repent of those types of sins, but first they need to be identified. Left unchecked, these sins wreak havoc in a life, and we're going to see that in the coming weeks, that David's decision here ruins his life, really. It's sad to see the consequences of his action, and our participation in these habitual sins that have the stranglehold on us are just ultimately displeasing to our Lord. Look with me again at verse 5, if you will. David receives the news that the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And you can imagine that when David receives this news, his stomach just drops. What was once a sin that was probably pretty private, now is going to have some pretty public ramifications, huh? I think we all know the feeling of um, that guilt that hits us when we're caught in the act. I was trying to think in my own life of when this might happen. Uh, maybe a little bit funny, but it's when you're passing 
You know, maybe you're on the highway and you drive by one of those like little cutoffs and you see a police officer hiding on the middle of the highway on those uh, cut throughs and you're speeding 10 over the limit and all of a sudden like your heart drops, right? You know the feeling. Your hands maybe get a little bit of sweaty. You find that your breath is like catching. You're like, <laughs> and you like try to like act natural, not hit the brakes too hard. You know what I mean? Like looking in the rearview mirror, did he pull out behind me? You know, I'm like downshifting so that my brake lights don't turn on. Like, we know what it is to be caught in the act, fully aware that we're guilty. David's feeling this. And he tries to act natural like we would. Oh, yeah, I'm going to speed limit. But he's taken some serious actions to try and mitigate the consequences of his sin. Tries to manipulate his circumstances, as we'll observe in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to, excuse me, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Pause there. David's plan is pretty obvious to us, huh? He's pretty crafty. He thinks, hmm, if I can just get Uriah back home and have him be with his wife, then no one is going to think that there was any wrong done here. Even Uriah himself is going to be deceived when his wife hears, when he finds out that his wife is pregnant, he'll be like, makes sense. I was home. But what David does not anticipate is that Uriah is a man of great integrity. And he comes home, and he doesn't go home. He doesn't make himself comfortable. He sleeps outside the king's door with the servants. This news makes its way to David in verse 10. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go home to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Again, Uriah's integrity is astounding here. I mean, how many other guys get to come home off the front lines? And Uriah's answer is, am I going to live in luxury and comfort of my own house when the army and the ark of the God are dwelling in a tent right now? I, I cannot do that. He has a strong sense of loyalty and integrity to uh, his brothers in arms. David tries to get him drunk tries to incapacitate him in that way so that he will just go home and cover David's sin. 
but both of these attempts fail. And so David becomes more and more desperate and sinister in his attempts to cover his sin with Bathsheba. And he's looking a lot less like a man who is described as being after the heart of God. It's sad, really, to see David stoop to these levels. Look what happens next. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Isn't it astounding that David sends the very letter containing Uriah's death sentence to Joab and Uriah has to carry it? The sealed scroll or letter bearing the instructions, make sure Uriah is dead, are carried back to Joab by Uriah himself. This is what David has come to. He says, there is no other recourse than that I must kill someone or orchestrate the circumstances so that someone dies. And what started off as deceit, trying to get Uriah to cover David's sin naturally, has now just morphed into all-out murder. And this web of lies and deceit keeps growing. Now this messenger is involved. Uh, we're going to see this correspondence that the messenger has with David. Uh, Joab is involved. People are getting sucked into this thing. Look at verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. It was amazing to me that Joab actually prepped the messenger. And he said, When you give David the news that we lost this battle or that we were, you know, defeated, expect David to be angry, to question our tactics in this battle. Why did you guys get so near the wall? What were you thinking? And Joab says, but then let him know that Uriah is dead. And there's almost this implicit, his attitude might change when he hears that. So the messenger comes and he tells David the events of the battle. And David is almost flippant here. He's not angry at all. He says, Joab, come on. Like, don't you know we're in a war? People die all the time. Get over it. Get back out there. 
The only news that David cares about in this whole correspondence is what? That your eye is dead. And at that news, he probably breathes a sigh of relief. Whew. I'm good. I can cover my tracks here. Look at what he does in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. I read a commentator who said that this process probably happened quickly enough so that no one was left scratching their heads thinking, how is Bathsheba pregnant? Right? David marries her soon enough that it looks as if his sin has been covered. He's off the hook. No one can, can incriminate him. He, Bathsheba is pregnant naturally. I neglected to read the final sentence of verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Can I remind you of something really simple this morning? God sees everything. This is like junior church level truth. If we ask the kids this morning, is God everywhere? They would say yes. Does he see everything? Yes. And yet David somehow thinks that he has been sneaky enough to get around all that. He's good. Whew. Dodged a bullet there. No, 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 no. God sees everything. We think we're pretty good at tr covering our tracks. I actually literally did this growing up. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents would take my iPod from me if I like did something that was deserving of a punishment. And I'm sure that was a pretty effective punishment because I think I was probably addicted to that thing. So I'd get in trouble, they'd take my iPad, uh, iPod, and they'd like set it on their dresser in their room. And I realized like at some point, I can still use this thing. Like they're not in the room, so I'll just go on in there, use it, leave it where it was. <laughs> there was one problem that they had a thick carpet that like, as I saw it, would leave my footprints going right over to the dresser. So I would like sneak in there, maybe my mom's in the kitchen or something. I'd go use my iPod, do whatever I wanted with it, and on the way out, I would walk backwards and like rub out my footprints out of the carpet. So no one would ever know that I had been covering my tracks, you know, so to speak. And as we get older, we do kind of the same things, don't we? It's not walking backwards out of a room and covering our tracks, it's deleting internet history. It's giving partial truths. We get pretty good at deflecting people's direct questions to us. I think it's almost a spiritual gift we're so good at it. And yet we possess very much the same mindset of David, who says, if I can just escape the consequences and no one can see, then I'll be good. All the while forgetting that there's a God who sees everything. This kind of thinking really reveals that we view sin, or the worst part of sin, as the consequences that we'll face. 
Sin is bad because there are bad consequences. And if we can somehow eliminate those consequences, then maybe our sin isn't that bad. If we don't get caught, we're good. No harm, no foul. That kind of thinking. And what David neglected to factor into his decision-making is that his actions displeased the Lord. Can I ask you this morning, does it ever factor into your decision-making when confronted with temptation that your actions might displease a holy God? And you say no to temptation for no other reason then I know this will grieve the heart of my Savior. Is that how we think? Or if given the opportunity to commit a sin in which no one would know, there would be no foreseeable consequences in your mind, you'd be like, okay, I'll indulge myself. I can't help but think about Joseph here. Remember Joseph, he was sold into slavery, goes over into Egypt. There's no family, no friends, no wife of his own to hold him accountable. And he's confronted with a sexual temptation. Potiphar's wife is throwing herself at him. And here's David in another country. Who's going to find out? Who cares? Remember David's response, or excuse me, Joseph's response in this story? He says this in Genesis 39, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he literally runs out of the house to avoid sinning. Joseph had a pretty good understanding of who his sin was against. It's ultimately against the Lord. Can I challenge you this morning not to think about sin in terms of consequences or what might happen if you get caught, but to remember that Jesus came and died for the very sins that we are choosing to indulge ourselves in. That we have been saved, literally delivered from these sins which condemned us to hell. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life and he died to redeem us from those very sins. So to continue to participate in them is to make a mockery of the gospel. And to say, Jesus, thank you for saving me from these things that have condemned me, but I'm going to jump headfirst back into them. That kind of behavior, in my thinking, makes a mockery of what Jesus has done. We've been saved to sin no more, as the song says. Please consider how your sins might be displeasing the Lord, and not just think about them in terms of consequences. This is an offense against a holy God. And Hebrews actually reminds us that those who are God's children, when they commit wrongdoing, God will discipline them. And this discipline in David's life is on display in chapter 12. Let's read the first couple verses together. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Anamites. You can almost imagine as Nathan is telling this story to David, the anger is welling up inside of him, right? We see the injustice of it. Here's a guy who has all these sheep, and he goes over to his neighbor who has one and kills that one sheep so that he can have dinner for his guest. We see the injustice of that. Imagine David, a shepherd, how he feels, and in an outburst of anger says, this person deserves to die and restore fourfold what they have taken. And Nathan looks at him and utters those famous words, it's you. David, you've done this. God has blessed you beyond compare. He has given you the kingdom. He's given you Israel and Judah. He's given your enemy Saul into your hands. God even says, if this were too little, I would have given you more. Why then have you taken the wife of another man for yourself. And according to Old Testament law, David's punishment should have been the punishment he decreed for this rich man. Death. David's committed adultery. He's committed murder. I think both of those were deserving of death according to the Old Testament law. And God actually begins to list the consequences for David's actions in the following verses. Look at verse 10. God says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. We are going to see these very consequences laid out for us in the coming chapters, so we'll be seeing this verse again, I guarantee it. But I want us to take the rest of the time that we have and just consider David's response to Nathan's rebuke here. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice here that David doesn't blame shift. 
He's not like Adam and Eve in the garden where Adam's like, ah. the woman made me do it. And the woman's like, oh, the serpent made me do it. Right? How good are we at deflecting the guilt when confronted with sin? And here David is being confronted himself, and he says, I've sinned. He calls sin what it is. And notice that he gets the object of his sin right as well. He's not confused about who he sinned against. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, there were several people who were impacted by David's sin in the story. Uriah, Bathsheba, we might even say Joab being complicit in this murder. The messenger who was sent back and forth. And yet David says, you know what? I've sinned against the Lord. And how does God respond to David's confession here? The rest of verse 13 says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Isn't God's mercy pretty astounding here? Here David is, deserving, rightfully so, of death. And Nathan is able to say that God has put away your sin, David. You will not face the ultimate consequences for your actions. Is this not a great precursor to the gospel? Where scripture tells us the wages of our sins are also death. And yet through the work of Jesus Christ, God is able to say in so many words, your sin has been put away. It's been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is good news. And what we have, verse 13, is what I'll call the concise version of David's repentance. For as big of a sin as David committed, we would like a little bit more than... I have sinned against the Lord, as his apology, right? Seems a little, we would like you to flesh that out, David, before we truly forgive you. That's how we kind of think sometimes. Well, scripture actually gives us the full version, if you will, of David's repentance. Turn over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Notice the inscription at the top of this psalm. It reads, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And rather than me reading this in its entirety, I would like you guys to take just a couple of minutes and quietly read this psalm. And then after like two or three minutes, I'm going to ask you to just point out some things that stood out to you that characterize true repentance, uh, that maybe you really appreciate about David, his transparency, his openness here before the Lord. We'll just call out some things very interactively after we read through this psalm. So take a couple minutes and do that. All right, I hope that was enough time to at least scan this psalm here. What were some of the... Uh, marks of true repentance that stick out to you from this psalm, or maybe just a verse that you especially appreciated given the, the circumstances and David's openness here. That verse caught my eye as well. Look at verse 16 and 17. 
David says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Things that we traditionally think of as God being pleased with. David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Yeah. David here is communicating a desire, not just, I'm sorry, but he wants to be changed. David wants his heart to be renewed from the inside out. Any other verses stick out to you? Communicating God truly forgives. Any others? Yeah, David understands that no one else can forgive him this sin. He, he is justly deserving of punishment. And so what he does here is he throws himself on the mercy of God. Verse 5, David says that familiar verse, In sin my mother conceived me. David is admitting that he's not a good person who messes up sometimes, but he is fundamentally a sinner. From the outset, he is a sinner. So maybe to tie all of these comments together and just make some very general conclusions about repentance, we would say that genuine repentance first must be directed to God. Uh, I'm not denying that other people are hurt by our sins. We may have other people that we do need to apologize to, but if we neglect to repent to God, we have missed something in our repentance. We have sinned against a holy God, and you must repent to him. Secondly, seems obvious, but you must admit that you've sinned. You can't do the old, ah, yeah, I kind of messed up here. Be vague about the terms of what happened in your sin. Eh, really, I was just with someone else that made a bad decision. It's kind of on them. No, genuine repentance admits that you have sinned, like David saying, my actions were evil. And thirdly, genuine repentance must demonstrate a willingness to change. As Brenda pointed out from verse 10, David says, create in me a clean heart, renew my spirit within me. And so let me urge you as we conclude this morning to let these be a test of your own repentance. If you're anything like me, we're sinning all the time. When you repent of those sins, when you're convicted of them, are you careful to direct that to God, to admit wrongdoing on your part? Are you demonstrating a desire to change, a willingness to change? How serious is it not to repent? Can I remind you of what Psalm 66 says? If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Pretty serious, huh? When we hang on to our sins, our prayers might be impacted. I don't think that's a place any of us want to be. There's a fascinating case study of repentance. If you were to look back at 1 Samuel 15, when Saul repents of disobeying the Lord's commandments, he has like a very half-hearted apology to Samuel. Remember Samuel tells him, uh, wipe out all of the people, uh, I think it's the Amalekites, and he keeps Agag alive, and he keeps all the animals alive. And Samuel confronts him, and Saul's like, mm, yeah, the people made me do it. He gives like this half-hearted apology. 
Take some time in your own time to look at that. Saul does not demonstrate genuine repentance here. This story, we don't have time to look at it. Obviously, we've heard the bell. The rest of chapter 12 concludes with that son that was born to Bathsheba dying as a consequence of David's actions. We are going to look next week at these consequences as they start to, I'll say, waterfall on David's life. It is a tragedy.